This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The idea of survival of the fittest is at the heart of evolution by natural selection. If a life form is to survive in competition with everything else that's out there, it has to evolve to become more and more competitive over time. And this is where we get evolutionary arms races. One of the most famous examples of these is the race between bats and moths. As some species of bats evolved to have better echolocation, species of moths evolved to get better hearing. That way they could detect the bat's active targeting system. And so what happened next? Well, some bats evolved to have even higher pitched calls, and then some moths then evolved to have even better hearing, and on and on it went. And there are a lot of these sorts of arms races across nature, including with venomous snakes. For instance, some species of squirrels have evolved blood serum-resistant proteins that provide a measure of immunity from rattlesnake venom. Now, the assumption is that once a defense like this has been established, a predator locked in an arms race is going to have to evolve again. But rattlesnakes may have a little extra help in this challenge. Because instead of having to evolve a brand new venom or a whole new strategy for catching and killing their prey, new research suggests that they may be able to tap into a library of genes that encode for other venomous proteins that have been collected and stored across millions of years of evolution. And in a paper recently published in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, Drew Shield and his colleagues have proposed that this may be one of the keys to the long and successful history of snakes on our planet. Drew Shield is a quantitative biologist and research fellow at the University of Colorado, where he studies the ways in which genes impact the never-ending battle to remain fit for an ever-changing world. Drew Shield, welcome. Hi, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me on. Drew, I think that most people are aware that snakes are often venomous and that venom is a poisonous substance that gets injected into prey when these types of snakes bite, but it might be a little less clear what venom is. Like, molecularly speaking, what are we talking about? What are these things injecting into their prey? Yeah, so oftentimes, at least in the realm of venom research, we think of you know, venom, as you're describing it, we can think of it as, as this singular thing. But really what it is, is this concoction, or people will often use the analogy of a cocktail, or I like toolkit. Um, yeah, it's this concoction that is a collection of a variety of different enzymes and toxins, each of which has distinct biological functions, it has different activities, and it has different things that can impact prey. Um, in diverse ways. So shutting down particular functions, messing up blood coagulation, destroying tissues, all sorts of nasty stuff. And these, these enzymes and, and these proteins that are, are the substances that make up this venom, each of these are coded for in a snake's DNA, somewhere, somewhere in the genetic code. Exactly right. They are derived from what we call venom gene families. And those venom gene families themselves, their origins are really intriguing. They arose via what is called a gene duplication event, where at some point in time, a mutation occurred where an ancestral gene literally became duplicated. We have two copies of it. And that second copy went on to eventually evolve into a venom gene protein. And then there's been 
subsequent duplications of those and, and deletions and all sorts of crazy stuff that's happened at the molecular level. Now, for a long time, it's been thought that evolutionary arms races would drive the code to create venom that was highly specified to kill specific prey. And and then if that prey evolved to be a less susceptible creature to a particular venom, then, well, then the snake might evolve in turn to use a different combination of molecular components. And and then I gathered, Drew, that it used to be assumed that the coding for the old venom would eventually disappear. That that was the old assumption. Do I have that right? And and what drove that thinking? Right. You're you're right about that. And so that is what we would consider, I guess, the prevailing hypothesis for how venom has evolved throughout its history, that it's been subject to very strong, what we call directional selection, where we're going from sort of one state to another, going from, you know, less fit venom for a variety of reasons. Intense selection pressure drives the venom to become more fit, or I guess the the individuals that possess the venom become more fit. They're better at killing their prey. And while I think at a at a very, very coarse scale, that is true, the specific evolutionary mechanisms, especially if we get down to the very fine scale mechanisms that are operating on genetic variation in populations, those mechanisms might be more varied than we previously thought. And you know, I, I love when any of my guests says the words prevailing hypothesis because it means we're about to suggest a different hypothesis. And and before just before we get to that, I'm just wondering, like, did you have the hypothesis before you collected all the snake DNA or did the snake DNA drive that? And then we'll talk a little bit about about the process that you went through. Certainly. Yeah. And maybe I'll go back and just reiterate that <clears throat> what the prevailing hypothesis was was actually based on mountains of evidence from from genetic studies over several decades. Basically, since gene sequencing has been possible, venom researchers have been interested in comparing the venom gene sequences between different venomous snake species. And what those analyses have shown is, is very convincing evidence that natural selection has been really operating on these venom genes in a, in a very powerful way. Um, and, and what, and so that didn't just come out of no, like the prevailing, like, like the prevailing hypothesis wasn't bunk. There was, there's lots of good evidence for it. Right. Exactly. Right. It wasn't bunk. And I'll even, I'll even say that the study that we recently published that we're talking about today, our study doesn't even refute that that sort of what the prevailing hypothesis is, which is it hypothesizes that directional selection is a relevant force when it comes to venom adaptation. We're not suggesting that that isn't true sometimes. We're kind of suggesting that it's not the only mechanism that we need to consider when thinking about venom adaptation in these species. Investigate this further you and your colleagues worked your way through the whole genomes of 68 rattlesnakes. Um, there are dozens of species of rattlesnake. Wh- which ones were you focused on? So here we were focused on 
two species of rattlesnake that are in a group that's called the Western Rattlesnake Species Complex. These are a collection of species and subspecies that diverged from a common ancestor about four million years ago. And the two species that we really focused on in this analysis were the prairie rattlesnake or Crotalus viridis and the northern Pacific rattlesnake, Crotalus origanus. And these two share a common ancestor a little less than three million years ago. And just so our listeners can put a really terrifying picture in their head, can you describe these guys? Yeah, so these snakes are typically maybe a, a full-grown adult is, is maybe a little under three feet long. Um, they can be pretty, I mean, their temperament varies quite a bit. Uh, prairie rattlesnakes are kind of notorious for being pretty grumpy, so they might fit a lot of people's sort of baseline assumption of how a rattlesnake might behave if they come into contact with a human where they'll, you know, sit up and start rattling and, and perhaps will strike. But the temperaments of these, these creatures can vary quite a bit too. So we've been surprised in the field sometimes where we have no idea that they're there and they keep quiet and they just don't want us to know that they're there. <laughs> Well, let I want to dive into that for a minute here because you know you note that some of your field work has been going out into the wilderness to find these snakes. That strikes me as both super exciting and also tremendously frightening. What is that experience like? I mean, you're like going out to try to find something that does have venom that can kill you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I okay. I'm I'm heavily biased here because I have been interested in snakes and how they work for my entire life. So I I see every opportunity to get out into the field, to go to these remote areas where the snakes exist. I I, I look at that as a very exciting opportunity. But I know that most people on the planet would probably think that that's quite weird. Um, but even if you're not into snakes, we get to go to, you know, studying these snakes means that we get to go to some of the most beautiful and remote areas of the United States, for sure. And so the experience is, I mean, it's it's a lot of camping, which many people enjoy. Uh, I myself enjoy it as well. And so it's a good excuse to to get out, get out into the wilderness to experience nature. And we have along with us all sorts of tools, um, perhaps you're the, you and the listeners are familiar with snake hooks or snake tongs. I, I would actually say that the most surprising thing about working with these snakes in the field is that I have never once felt like my life was in danger. There are certainly instances where we are in close contact with the snakes. Um, sometimes it's necessary, depending on what type of sample we're obtaining. Certainly venom samples are probably the most uh, up close and personal we get with the snakes, but it's all done in a very controlled way. And often the snakes are much more relaxed than say, you know, film and, and TV shows would have you believe. So while they can be quite grumpy, a lot of the time they're pretty relaxed and it's just kind of a pleasure to be out there interacting with them in their natural environment and getting to see what it is they do and see some beautiful country in the, in the meantime. The whole idea of 
whole genome sequencing for 68 individual snakes is, I mean, to me, this is really pretty cool because to put this into context, we are less than 10 years removed from the first time that a draft genome was published for any snake. That was for a boa. And it wasn't until 2014 that we even had large parts of the first viper genome. And I, so I don't want to minimize the work involved in sequencing 68 individual snakes, but it's really quite amazing that we can do that now compared to just a few years ago. It absolutely is amazing. It's the, the feasibility and the, even the economy when it comes to sequencing an individual genome at this point, it's just, it's become so much more feasible and that's opened a lot of doors. And so you're exactly right. Up until a few years ago, the idea of being able to sequence one snake genome, let alone, you know, close to 70 was just outrageous. Our ability to study the sorts of questions that we're interested in using these types of data has really been maximized just even in the last handful of years. When I began my dissertation work focused on this group of rattlesnakes, uh, I would not have thought that this sort of thing was possible. Um, we were headed in that direction, but I didn't think that it would be possible this soon. So it's really very exciting. And then a big part of this story is processing power too, right? Like the rattlesnake genome has about 28 million single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are the places where a substitution of one molecule in a genetic code can ch cause a change in programming. And the ability to sort through all of that code is something that's relatively new to us also. Yeah, absolutely. As genome sequencing efforts have been increased over the last uh, decade or so um, and next generation sequencing technologies have taken off and so forth the need for extremely powerful computers and software to process just the enormity of the data sets that we can produce at this point that need has just increased many many times over and we are now dealing with a big data issue. I mean, it's a big data opportunity, but it also means that we need to develop computational resources, not even, not, sorry, we need to develop computational resources, not only in terms of the hardware, but also in terms of software that is capable of parsing these enormous genomic data sets uh, in such a way that we're not just sitting, twiddling our thumbs for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. So what you and your computer nerd colleagues have at this point is a bunch of codes from a bunch of snakes. And, and maybe one of these snakes has evolved to be really good at taking down squirrels, and maybe another has evolved to hunt newts. And you're looking for the sequences in, in all of this vast code, that code for venom that is specialized for these tasks. But, but in the process of doing this, you guys start to see something in all of this code, right? Yeah. So to, to take a step back, as of a few years ago, we, we mentioned before that venom is composed of a variety of different 
toxins and enzymes. And the genes that encode those toxins and enzymes are found all over the genome. Up until a few years ago, we had only kind of a cursory understanding of what those genes were and, and where they might reside physically in the genome. So how they're distributed across chromosomes in the snake genome. Uh, back in 2019, uh, our group published the prairie rattlesnake genome that was the first chromosome level genome assembly for a snake. What that allowed us to do was figure out exactly where the venom genes reside in the genome. So having that map of where venom is encoded in the genome then allows us to sequence a whole bunch of individuals from different populations across the, the range of these two species. And it enabled us to examine genetic variation in those venom gene regions now that we know where they are. How do you know when you're when you're looking at a at a genetic code, how do you know which regions are venomous? Do you knock out those genes and then see what happens? No, we we didn't use knockouts in any of our work. We were initially working based on the assumption of sequence homology. So this is the idea that if two sequences are identical, or in our case, if they're sufficiently similar, it's very likely that they are uh, homologous sequences, meaning they're identical or very similar by descent. And so what we had at our disposal was a variety of previously isolated venom gene sequences. These are where these sequences were derived from the venom proteins themselves. So researchers isolated specific components of the venom, were able to figure out the protein level sequence of those venoms. And then we can use those, we can map them back to our genome sequence and see what parts of the genome are most similar. A second step to that process was then looking at venom gland gene expression. So how much a given gene is expressed, how many transcripts of that gene are present in different tissue samples from the rattlesnake. Um, and so we were able to compare gene expression of these, you know, presumably venom genes between say the venom gland and something like skin or liver. And here the idea is that if these are truly venom genes, meaning they're contributing to the venom phenotype and its composition, they had better be only expressed in the venom gland and not in something like skin or liver, because if they're expressed there, the animal's dead. And so that signal of being really only expressed in the venom gland combined with our ability to compare the sequences between known venom genes and the genes that we think may be venom, those layers of evidence together give us sort of the confidence to know that this is where the venom is encoded. So the genes for different versions of venom that have existed across a snake's evolutionary history, those codes, they don't just go away. They they stick around? Yeah, 
So one possibility is that under that prevailing hypothesis we talked about before of directional selection, within populations, if there is variation at a single venom gene locus, right, a, a single, an individual venom gene that's contributing to the phenotype in some way, if there's variation there, that, that's what we would consider allelic variation. There's multiple forms of the gene occurring at the same location in the genome. And over time, if that venom gene is subject to very strong directional selection for one version or one allele over the other, at a certain point in time, the allele that is not favored may disappear from the population altogether. And the idea of this arms race coevolution with prey suggests that that might be, if that is happening at every venom gene that contributes to the phenotype, that might actually be a little bit of an issue for the snake predator because if evolution is, is sort of tinkering on this problem or natural selection rather is tinkering on this problem and is constantly selecting for one form above all others, it could lead to evolutionary dead ends because if the prey species over time evolve resistance to this sort of perfected form, it's not truly perfect, but this idea of sort of a maximally fit form of venom, if there's no genetic diversity underlying venom as a trait, then that means that the snake predators may not have the ability to adapt to their prey any longer because they'll be waiting for some new mutation to arise within a venom gene that will allow it to be more effective against the prey. And that is extremely unlikely to happen. And so what might end up occurring is that selection might actually favor the persistence of multiple forms or these multiple alleles at any given venom gene so that the snakes are sort of maintaining a certain level of genetic diversity over time. And so it's sort of like these species have access to like a, a really old library with all sorts of instruction books on making different kinds of weapons. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's a fitting analogy there. Venom as a trait really is kind of like a library because the genes that end up getting expressed and contributing to the phenotype are numerous. And so if we have, say, 10 to 20 different gene families that are contributing to the trait, the relative amounts of those different components that make up the trait can be sort of thought of, I, I suppose could be thought of as, the relative amounts could be thought of as sort of pulling different books down from the shelf. And, and I guess, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not doing a, a great job of that, but I think the <laughs> well, analogy no, I th I is I think apt. that actually works. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think, so that's helping me at least, uh, you know, like, so what would be then if we, if we expand on this, what would be the process for, let's say like checking out one of these old books, because this isn't something that every snake would be able to do at a moment's notice. The, the process of checking out the book, so to speak, 
this would still take a lot of time and be driven by waxing and waning pressures, right? Exactly. And the important thing to consider here is that not every snake is going to necessarily possess multiple forms of the same gene. Uh, not every individual is going to have all of the tools in this toolkit. What we're talking about is really a, a, a function of the population. We're really thinking of things at the population level. And so going back to your analogy, it'd be sort of like different individuals in the population have checked out different versions of these various books that contribute to uh, venom as a, these venom books. Um, and so what that means over time is that if there is not very strong selection for one specific form, but instead there is selection for a maintenance of multiple forms is that genetic diversity is going to relative to other regions of the genome be quite exceptional in venom gene regions if this library has been and, and its diversity has been maintained over time. That's Drew Shield. He is a quantitative biologist and a research fellow at the University of Colorado. And the study he co-authored on the evolution of rattlesnake venom was recently published in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Drew Shield, thank you so much. Thanks, Matthew. It's been great. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.